Good day, everybody. Hello, and welcome back to Merged Worlds, uh, another episode to be put into the books. Uh, let me begin right off the bat by saying I am a little bit sorry here uh, that the sound quality might seem a little low. It turns out my microphone, I guess, is going bad, and it will be after the holidays before I can probably afford to upgrade. So I will try to talk loudly, <laughs> and I've got it cranked up to the highest, but you may need to turn up your volume just a smidge. Uh, as always, I appreciate you coming by and uh, allowing me the opportunity to share my story with you all. I look forward to uh, telling this, and hopefully today's episode will be just as good as normal, if not better. Uh, but good day to, let's see, Miss Ashley. Jim's stuck in traffic. All right, gotcha. Hello, MT and Kenneth. Good day. Welcome. Um, so we'll begin, of course, with our little recap from where we left off, and then we will jump into this week's episode of Excitement and Doom. Um, as always, if you haven't already, it would be great if you would mind clicking that like button, of course. Uh, but most importantly, be sure to subscribe to the channel. Uh, this podcast is also available as an audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you can get podcasts from. So if you have any of those services, it would be phenomenal if you wouldn't mind giving them a follow, a like, or even a review. The star, the five stars and all that business uh, definitely helps the podcast a lot. So yeah, we'll jump into some story. It's been about a month since the last one. Unfortunately, I was not able to stream a couple weeks ago. Uh, we have the next episode will be just like a couple days after Christmas, but I fully plan on streaming one more this year. And this is episode 91. Good Lord, that's a lot of hours. Um, I actually had uh, a little bit of information about the podcast had been spat out with my Spotify review thing of the year. Although I don't remember where I put that paper, but uh, it was uh, some interesting facts that I'll have to track down and share on the Discord. If you haven't followed us there, be sure to join the uh, Discord. Um, but yeah, so we're going to jump right in here. Uh, so where we left off, right? Um, Seraph, Deacon, Mugen, and Dina had joined up with Red on his quest uh, to get a magical circlet. Uh, he's trying to help save a young man's life, if not, nay, his soul, because it is currently uh, trapped outside of his body into a gem. And they need this circlet to get it back. Red says that he needs Seraph specifically in order to pull this off, though he doesn't quite know exactly why or how. Red is a person who is literally guided by fate. Um, and so, you know, working on that. Really quiet, by the way. Yeah, no, that's that's the microphone going bad. I apologize. I talked about it a little bit at the very beginning. Folks will have to turn their volume up some to be able to hear me. I apologize. I have to get a new microphone after the holidays, and I'm just trying to limp on through the rest of this year right now. Um, so, let me make sure volume is turned up all the way on this one. Yes, volume is cranked up as high as I can put it with, the, with this currently. Um, so, they had traveled north from the city they were in um, and had picked up another person on the way. Um, had uh, grabbed a young man named Ward, or didn't grab him, you know what I mean, uh, who is a thief, who, uh, again, the fate powers, if you will, of Red, or his ability to um, literally be guided by fate, led them to Ward, who he says he also needs to be able to succeed, though again, doesn't know exactly why. 
Uh, let's see. Been gone too long. Sick hair. Oh, well, thank you. Yes. Uh, for those of you who are watching the video version on YouTube, my hair is dyed half red, half green right now. That was one of the stretch goals for our charity stream we had right before Thanksgiving. Uh, the community picked half red, half green, so I'm all Christmas up for the month. Um, so after picking up Ward, they entered into the Great Swamp, a swamp that uh, no one who really goes that far into it ever returns. A very dangerous place. They had several little adventures, and near the very end, they had come across this giant, massive, inhumanly large tree uh, that looks like it had been there for an overwhelmingly large amount of time. Uh, they ended up having to fight a bunch of giant panthers in the area in the evening, and then the next morning they were able to find a secret door or way to get into the tree. Uh, and there were some stairs that led down underground that seemed to lead underneath the tree through its roots. So they had found that entrance and were about to enter in. Uh, that's kind of where we left off. So that's where we're going to be picking up. Uh, I know that during a lot of the earlier Merged Worlds, this section, if you would, we bounced back and forth between the two different groups. Um, for the time being, we're going to be sticking with Seraph's group through the ending of this this storyline before bouncing to the other group, and then we'll be doing a full storyline for them. So not as much bouncing back and forth right now. There are reasons for that that'll make sense as we, as we move forward, but uh, uh, hopefully... You'll all uh, be okay with that. Because <laughs> that's how it's going to work. <laughs> so there we are. Uh, so, of course, as always, start off with a little bit of reading. Uh, I got a bunch written down. Uh, I figure this should probably take hour, 15, hour and a half to do today's episode, is my estimate. But I'm horrible at estimating. So I guess we will see. So the stairs leading down into the earth were carved from the stone and very, very old. Covered in dirt, moss, and vines, they were difficult to descend. Seraph went first, weapons drawn. The only light came from Deacon's hands at the rear of the party. Occasionally, roots blocked their path, but Seraph was easily able to cut or break them. So these stairs are leading down underneath of this massive tree. Um, and even though the, the door that they opened to get in there doesn't seem like it had been opened in a long time, Stuff is still growing. The ground is carved out of rock, but there's still dirt and such. Vines and moss and mold, all that's in there. And uh, None of them are too difficult. Most of them, Seraph can literally just pull and rip out or cut with his sword. Uh, but the ground is slick with the moss and stuff. If you've ever gone down the uh, hillside or something steep, rocks where there's moss on it, you'll have an idea of what I'm talking about. It's very slippery. And so they have to go very slowly and carefully uh, to keep from falling. The stairs do go down quite a ways, and the door closed behind them as they were going down. Uh, once the door closed, it was complete darkness. Deacon is at the rear of the party, and he's carrying a torch so that Everybody can see, because he and Dina and Red, none of them have any type of information. Uh, as Neither does Ward. Uh, it's only Seraph and Mugen that do. Uh, so Seraph is at the front of the party, um, where he's trying to, you know, make sure he doesn't run into any problems. I need to clear that up. He, uh, let me rephrase. Deacon is not uh, carrying a torch. I'm sorry. I said that incorrectly. Um... Grab it here again. Uh, so Deacon's actually using a spell, which is causing a light glow that they can see, but it's not overwhelmingly bright or throwing shadows. So that way, um, Seraph, up in the front and a little bit ahead, has a chance of using some of his infravision. So he's using a spell of light. It's not a torch. Let me clarify that. 
The air was stagnant and smelled of moss. It was quite clear no one had passed through this way in a very long time. Finally, Seraph could see they were approaching the bottom. He motioned for everyone to wait while he checked it out. Right? He's going to be a little careful there. Deacon ended his light spell so Seraph would have full use of his infravision. The stairs ended at the entrance to a circular chamber about 30 feet in diameter. Seraph was very careful not to enter. There was nothing living inside that he could see, but whether there were any traps or anything of that nature, something he wouldn't be able to tell. There appeared to be three large doors in the room, most of, uh, made of most likely wood. Seeing nothing else, he returned to his friends. So let me give you the layout here. They're coming down the stairs, right? Round room. There's a door directly across from them. And then 90 degrees left and right, there's direct doors to the side. So technically, there's four ways in this room. They're perfect cross. They're coming in one of them. Give you the layout. 30 feet in diameter. Perfectly round room. The doors appear to be made of wood. Um, for those of you who don't know, infravision, for those who have it, and, you know, casting an infravision spell lets you see, but it's very confusing because if, unless you've had infravision your whole life, just because you can see doesn't mean you understand. Different heat temperatures and the way things uh, reflect can, can mean different type of textures and makeup based on the amount of heat. And that's really what original second edition and early D&D that's how night vision worked, or infravision. In more modern D&D, they have what's basically is called dark vision, which means you see like normal, it's just not as bright. It's weird. It sucks kind of the, the, the challenge out of that. But uh, uh, if you're looking for something that's more infravision, imagine something more like predator vision, if you will. So different colors based on the amount of heat. And that's where they see edges, and that's where they see lines, which is one of the reasons why with infravision, you can't write anything unless somebody's writing in something that produces heat. A book or a scroll can't be read in the dark because it's just paper. Um, even races that live under in the underdark, such as drow, uh, usually mages are the few people who have some accustomation to light because they will have to be able to read spell books and spell scrolls and such. So they have to learn to at least use very, very mild candlelight in order to be able to read what it is that's been written. Um, little, little glimpse at infravision there. Uh, so at that point, after explaining what he could see, they went ahead and they lit some torches. Deacon ends his spell, because they're going to want to have more light now. Torches were lit and everyone descended to the chamber. Ward was nervous, but admitted uh, he had practice in discovering hidden traps. So Ward lets it out. He's like, listen, I'm not really looking forward to the thought of going into this room, especially if you're worried about traps. If you're worried about traps, that means there could be traps, and I sure as hell don't want to be the one involved. But he had to admit, yes, I have some experience in the finding and disarming of traps. It is some training that I have and the experience that I have. So it does make sense for me to be the one to go and look because nobody else does. Right? Nobody else in this group is a rogue. And that's, uh, again, kind of bringing D&D into the story, right? A rogue has these abilities, but a rogue at least in the version of D&D that I play, 2nd edition, you get to, as you're level, you, leveling, you get to put points into different thieves' skills, and you may completely ignore one to be able to focus on another. So not all thieves have the same ability and the same skills. This is one that he has some ability, though he admits not a whole lot of familiarity. Still more than anybody else has. So sl slowly and carefully, he made his way around the room, looking for anything out of the ordinary. Seraph closely behind him. 
So everybody else kind of stood in the stairway and did not enter the room. Ward went in first. He's checking the ground, looking for pressure plates, strings, something that would be a you know a tail of a trap, checking the walls for holes. Is something going to come shooting at me if I step here? All the different telltale things he would be looking for. And Seraph is directly behind him, the only other person in the room. Because in case something bad does happen, Seraph is the best uh, or the most capable person of getting Ward out of harm's way there were spikes or something like that, or if something came into the room that was dangerous, physically, Seraph is the strongest fighter in the group, to their knowledge. Um, they have seen Red fight now, and Red's definitely more capable by all means, but he still wouldn't stand up to Seraph's or even Deacon's ability. Finally, the two men were comfortable that there was nothing dangerous, or, or uh, and the rest of the party joined them. So after clearing the room, we didn't find any traps, which playing d d doesn't necessarily mean you didn't set one off just means you didn't find it, but they didn't find any traps. So they go into the room and they begin doing a bit more of a search, seeing what's going on now that they feel comfortable walking around. The room itself was mostly unremarkable. The walls, floor, and ceilings were rough stone. The room appeared to be cut out of the natural rock. And the door... So so the walls themselves aren't perfectly smooth. They're not brick. It's like the room was carved out of rocks. So there might be little jagged chips, but it's not like huge rocky things sticking out. It's still relatively smooth-like, but if you ran your hand across it, it wouldn't be flat or like smooth or anything like that. Uh, the doors, on the other hand, were quite decorative. Made of some type of thick, dark wood none of them had ever seen before, the doors had carvings of different runes and sigils. In the center of each door was a carved circle 12 inches in diameter. Each had a different shape, shaped hole in the center. Though they didn't look like anything in particular, and each was different. So there's an indent in the door. Circular door, 12 inches. Okay? That indention is about an inch and a half to two inches thick. Okay? In the middle of that, there's another hole that goes in a little bit deeper, and it's a weird shape, usually coming into a point. You can't see through the door. So to give an example, imagine if you had a, a plate, right, with something spiky sticking out of the bottom, or a disc or a frisbee, Right? You set it in there. If it fits, it would fit kind of thing. And that's immediately what this looks like. The doors had no locks or handles and no obvious way to open them. Seraph tried pushing, but even with his great strength, they did not budge at all. Long way to come just to get locked out, huffed Ward. Every lock has a key, my friend, replied Deacon. We've only to find it. It's already found, said Red with a chuckle. They watched as he opened his pack, digging around inside for a moment. Finally, he pulled out a metal plate made of silver. On one side, there was a beautifully engraved rune, and on the back, a large piece of oddly shaped silver stuck out. Red tried to place the, do the disc into the open hole of the center door. The plate itself seemed the correct size, but the piece on the back did not seem to fit inside. So he's got this disc, okay, the right disc, it fits, but when he tries to put it in, the oddly shaped spike on the back, does because again, it's, it comes out kind of like a cone, but imagine very much so like a key. There's grooves and stuff cut into it, and it has to slide in to fit perfectly. Kind of like putting a, a round peg in a square hole, right? You, you've got to find the right piece that's going to fit in there. Red tries that on the middle door, and unfortunately it just doesn't seem to go in all the way. Red began to walk towards the door on the right, but was quickly stopped by, stopped by Mugen. This one, he said, pointing to the door on the left. How do you know? asked Red, puzzled. 
Figgy always says go left first, replied Mugen with a shrug. Very important rule. Red smiled and attempted to place the disc into the door on the left as he'd been directed. It fit in easily and held in place. It began to glow and there were sounds of something heavy moving behind the walls. Finally, the door began to slide to the side, revealing a new passage. Red smiled down at Mugen. Looks like Figgy is a very smart man. Oh, he's the smartest, grinned Mugen. Where did you get the disc? asked Dina. Because, you know, obviously that's a question. How did you know we are going to need this? You didn't know we were coming into a giant tree. And so Red kind of tells him you know, what happened. He said that, you know, a couple months ago, while traveling, trying to track down where uh, Dina and, and Seraph was, primarily Seraph, of course, he was out looking for them. <laughs> Left for the wind, exactly. It's officially a rule now. Mo- Figgy says so. Um, so, well, there's a searching for them, you know, like I said, there came a point when he could finally sense Seraph again. And that's when Seraph took off the amulet that hides him and put it on Dina. At that moment, he was once again, fate began to be able to direct him towards where Seraph was. And as he was traveling, he was traveled through many different towns and villages and cities. <laughs> and uh, in one of these small towns, as he was going in, as he was looking for any signs, fate had brought him through this town. Uh, so his assumption was maybe this is where he'd find Seraph or at least a clue to where Seraph was. As he was walking through the streets, he heard voices in a shop nearby. Voices were yelled, angry, and yelling. Curious, he tucked his head inside and found that there were several dwarves inside trying to sell some things to the shop owner. The shop itself appeared to have antiquities, antiques, things of, of relics, things of, of, uh, of value, but not currently made things. So, you know, a place you'd go to, almost like an antique shop, if you would. You want some old pottery, you want something of that, or, or maybe uh, these are pots from an elven kingdom you can't get around here. It deals in the unusual things you don't normally find. The dwarves were trying to sell these some things to the shop owner, and the dwarves were there claiming to be archaeologists who'd unearthed several different relics. It was clear that the store owner wasn't buying their story, and easily believed they were more likely to be grave robbers of some kind, and concerned did not want to buy any ill-gotten goods uh, for fear that it might come back on him. Red kind of stood there watching the conversation, and as one of the dwarves steps aside while they're talking to each other, he was able to see the items sitting on top of the, of the, of the counter, if you would. And one of them was the disc. Immediately, Red felt drawn to the disc. And Red knows when that type of thing happens, he should follow those instincts. And he entered in and, and inserted himself into the conversation, saying, hey, I understand he's not interested, but I'm interested, potentially, in some of the things you have here. And, you know, Red's not an idiot, haggling over a couple other things, doesn't want to show interest on the one thing specifically for fear that they might realize they have something more valuable and more important than they do. He was able to work out a deal on several of the items as a lot, the disc included. Paying what he honestly at the time felt was was more than the silver was worth, uh, only now to find out once again his instincts were very, very good. So he bought the disc and had it with him, though how he would need it, or why? He kept it. The other things he got, he sold very soon after that. There was nothing he felt pulled or attached to them at all. So back into the room, back into the chamber underneath, that chamber, that tunnel is now open. And they begin to go down there. Kind of the same path as before. 
right? Ward is going to be up front checking for traps with Seraph directly behind him. Uh, so if you're wondering party order, that's the beginning. Ward is up front in situations where there's concerns, there's traps. Uh, in situations where there's not a concern, Ward being technically a squishy at this point, squishy being a low-level character who's easy to squish, uh, would be more so in the middle. Uh, usually it would actually be Red or Mugen that would be next in that group. Because many people first looking at Mugen might think he's a squishy, uh, would be very, very wrong. After several minutes of walking down the passage, the uh, passage came to an end uh, into a large chamber. This one about twice the size of the chamber they'd left a moment ago. Stepping inside, they saw opposite them a marble slab about waist height. Sitting upon it was another disc, much like that one, silver, although they can't see a lot of the details. Next to the slab was a large marble throne upon which sat a large figure. It appeared human, though it must be well over seven feet tall. It was dressed in ornate robes and jewelry, but its skin appeared sunken and shriveled, as if it had sat directly on the, sk on the skull. So, it's not a skull. It's got skin, but it's just very thinned out. Imagine in any movie you've ever seen where the thing is shrunken in, and it's almost like a skull, but you can still see the skin there, and it looks a little leathery. Um, its eyes were closed, so it still has eyelids. And, it like, and likely it had been sitting there a very, very long time. Several torches lit the room, which was surprising, considering the chamber appeared as if no one had been, or no one had been inside and it had been empty for years. So that's a moment of concern, right? These look like regular torches, several of them along the wall, and they're lit. Why are they lit? Who lit them? You know what I mean? Is there something living that's coming down in here? And even though it looks like no one's been in here, someone really has. Are they magical torches and they've been burning for a million years? These are things that are like, okay, this is obviously outside the norm. We have to, we have to pay attention to that in case that's a concern. They entered the chamber slowly with weapons drawn. They were sure some kind of sorcery was obviously within, the torches being the best clue. They did not have to wait long to find out they were correct. Barely had they taken a step inside when the eyes of the figure on the, chamber, on the chair opened. A soft blue light emanated from them where its pupils would have been. So you don't really see eyeballs or anything. There's just like a, a light blue glow there, like a light without a direct source. The whole thing just seems like blue light is coming out. A soft glow. It's not like phew, Cyclops shooting across the room kind of thing. The figure slowly stood, its clothes and body creaking with the movement. The group stood ready, but no attack came. Why have you come here? The figure asked. Its voice sounded like it was coming from a great distance and had an echo that sounded as if it was not one but two voices speaking to them. So as it speaks, even though they can see it and they can hear it, it looks like it's coming out of their mouth. It seems like it's almost being, I'll give you an example, like a microphone, someone speaking out through the thing. The thing is really at a great distance. And there's a bit of an echo. So when it says something, there's another, like another voice right behind him saying it just slightly later. It's like, how are you? It'd be, how are you? How are you? You know, that kind of thing, that echo voice, although it sounds the same voice, it's not a different voice by any means. Uh, where are we? The figure stood there silently, awaiting an answer. They look at each other, and they're like, well, what else are we going to do? Red took a tap forward and said, we have come for the circlet of Dionysus. Now, this is the first time 
that any of them have heard the actual name of this. He calls it a magical circlet or a magical item or an artifact, but he's never actually given it a name until this moment. The figure slowly nodded. The circlet is an artifact of immense power. It was placed in our care long ago. If you wish to take it, you will be tested. Now, that's never something anybody wants to hear. Tested how, right? What kinds of tests? Asked Red suspiciously. So right off the bat, they have some information. It's been put in our care. Okay, what's got an echoey voice? Is this thing technically more than one thing? There's other doors. Are there more of these things? Is there something different in there? What does in our care mean? More importantly, what kind of tests? The creature itself isn't giving off any type of feeling of animosity, like it's like you're not like it's pinched up or built up ready to attack. But there is a feeling of of almost like power or energy coming from it. It seems powerful. It's giving off that aura of this is not something we would want to mess with if we can help it. The figure, which at this point I'm going to tell you never gives a name, states that there will be three tests that must be successfully passed. These will test whether they are worthy and can be trusted with the artifact. Because it's an artifact of great power, and they've talked about this. This thing has the ability to literally remove a soul, remove a soul from a body or into a body. Um, taking someone's soul is a seriously powerful mojo, and that's just not something you want to put in the hands of anybody, right? Uh, you want to make sure it's not going to fall into the wrong hands. And they said that it was put in the hands, or put into them to protect it, to keep it safe. They don't want, whoever gave it to them didn't want it out there where everybody can, somebody can use it for nastiness. And it sounds like it's been in here a long time. In each of these tests, one person of the group will be chosen. Failure would mean death for them all. Uh, says that they will be tested both in heart, or tested all in heart, mind, and soul. So, that's really vague, right? What does that mean? Is it a math test, right? Do I got to fight somebody? Like, do I have to cast a spell as a deacon, you know? And definitely you can imagine, out of everybody right now, the most worried one is Seraph. A, I don't want Dina to get hurt, right? That's the first thought. Number two, you're saying you get to choose, choose which one of us takes these tests. What if it's a fighting test and you pick Dina? Like, she's been practicing, but she's not going to be able to take on something like what's in front of him. Seraph can't help but wonder if he could take this. Again, that aura of power coming off of it is very strong. Although, you know, how powerful it is, they really can't tell. Deacon, of course, asks something that's kind of also floating in the back of their minds. He blatantly, you know, curious, of course, in a non-threatening way, asks, and what if instead we try to take it? He's open about it. Okay, what if instead of your test, we just try to take it? The figure's head turns and looks at Deacon and says, then, then, you will, you will be, then you'll all be destroyed. Like, very, then you'll all be destroyed. Not killed, mind you. I want to stress that. Not killed. Destroyed. There is a very important difference between those two words. As he says that, again... A surge of power, like a wave, kind of washes over them, emanating from this creature. And not painful in any ways, but enough that literally make them stumble backwards. Even Mugen can feel it, the power of how much magic washes out of this thing. And 
again, it's not a threat. It's just an example of you don't want to touch this. You don't want to mess with me. And it kind of shows the, just a small taste of the amount of power that this thing has. Feeling that it makes Seraph worry anymore. And he basically turns and kind of talks to the rest of the party. Like, okay, right now it sounds like we have a choice. We can say, let's do this, or we can leave and let it go. Now, I know we're here for a reason, and I'm going to keep my word read, but I'm not sure if we want everybody in here. There, You said you need me. You said you need Ward. Um, maybe it's best that the rest of our folks leave so that way, if something does go wrong, at least they'll be safe. I mean, if they're if you're not feeling like you needed them, because Red never said that he did, right? One moment. Red never said, "Hey, I'm here for you and Dina, or you and Deacon." He's like, "I'm here for you. I need you for some reason." And the friends came along with them. He says, "And I need Ward." So Sarah's like, "Maybe it should be just." The three of us that goes in here. Now you can imagine Ward sitting there like, I don't, I don't like this at all. Maybe I should wait outside. Oh, I, I said I'd come help get some treasure. Nobody say anything about being destroyed. This is a little bit higher above than the pay grade you have put me in at this moment. And definitely voices things in that manner. As you can imagine, though, both Dina and Deacon and Mugen uh, all are like, no, we're not leaving. There's no way we're going to leave you down here. If things go wrong or things go bad and you get into a point where you do have to fight for your life, uh, we're not just going to be up there not able to help. Um, and that's that's not an acceptable option as well. Um, and so, you know, talking over, they figured, well, I guess we have to go through these tests then. We have to go ahead and step in and try to do that stuff. Destroyed a friendly match of fencing. There you go. That's a good example, Gore. Um, it's just an important important moment. I want to I want to clarify that, right? Uh, Seraph does not demand that Dina go out and wait, right? That's not that's not the kind of relationship they have. Uh, he asks her, "Hey, I think this might be the best. What do you think?" He's asking her opinion. Uh, in no time does Dina, does Dina or Seraph ever command each other. That is not the kind of relationship they have. When he met Dina, Dina was a much more outwardly. Um, our kind of person was much more confident in many ways than he, and still to this day is, especially in social situations. He still feels out of place, whereas Dina does not. She can strike up a conversation with anyone, much much like uh, Deacon can, right? So Seraph, a little more nervous about that kind of thing. He's more of a shy nature, if you will, until the fight kicks in, and then his instincts kick in in his training, and he's able to do some serious damage. But he would never dream, wouldn't cross his mind to demand or command Dina to go wait outside. You know what I mean? That you know, they, He does not see her as a helpless damsel or anything of that nature. Again, why they've been he- trying to teach her how to fight. They want her to be able to be more capable of taking care of herself because in a big, dangerous situation, they may have their hands full. And her being able to save her own life or hold her own could mean the difference between her life and death. So... Uh, and of course, Moog and Deacon the same way. Guys, maybe it would be better if you guys waited outside so you guys don't get involved in anything bad. That's how Seraph would approach that. And they'd be like, no, we're not doing that. And Seraph, whether he likes it or not, would accept that. They, It's their choice as much as it is as his. Um, he would never imagine his father commanding his mother. Right? That's just not the relationship Draven and Artemis have. 
if anything, if anyone was to command, it'd be more likely Artemis to command Draven, but that would be more in an official capacity than it would be as a, hey, we're husband and wife, right? It's like, hey, at this moment, I have to speak as the head of the clerics, head of this temple to protect Serenity. This is what's going to happen, you know? Uh, Mercy and Artemis, they bumped heads on this several times, and Artemis does not take that uh, lying down like she used to in the early days. She stands up for herself, and so that's very much in the kind of world that Seraph was raised. He just does not imagine in any way commanding Dina to do something. Um, so he's like, do you want to do this? And she's like, no, I'm staying. He's like, okay then. Well, well I guess we might go down together. But that would you know, like it better than the alternatives, right? Because what are the alternatives? Deacon, Mugen, and Dina try to get back through the swamp by themselves? Right? It's the flip side of that. They all, Red Ward and Seraph die down there, and now these three guys have to try to make it through the swamp that the six of them barely made it to get to this point. Also, not the best way to look at that. Red's, of course, finally after the decision's made, is turned and says to the figure, We will accept these challenges. We've come to the circle, and it's imperative that we have it. The figure nods and then tells Red to step forward. Now, the thing is said that they were going to tr- uh, test them both heart, mind, and soul. Um, but when he steps forward, I mean, the, the figure says, step forward and we will te- and, and your heart will be tested. Red does as he says. He puts his weapons away and steps forward. The thing hasn't drawn any weapons. There's no illusion or assumption that he's going to have to fight at this moment. And if he does, his, his weapons... Well, magical, because they are. Red is a very experienced adventurer. He's got some gear on him, I can promise you. Uh, one-on-one with this thing, probably they're not going to help him as much. So he steps forward and says, okay, what's this test? Let's go. What's going on? The figure raised its shriveled hand and placed it gently on Red's head. Red felt his body begin to grow numb, and his vision became blurry. One moment he stood in the chamber... The next, his vision cleared, and he found himself standing in the marketplace of a large city. Was he teleported? I mean, Lily, his body starts to just, almost like that feeling of you're going to sleep, and his eyes get woozy, and he feels like he's going to pass out, but then it kind of fades back in real quick, and he's no longer there with his friends. And he looks around. None of his allies are there. The figures are not there. He's just standing in a marketplace, middle of the day, Busy one. No knowledge of how he got there. Red's mouth hung open in shock as he realized where he was. He knew this place, though it had been decades since he'd been there. The city of Trenovan was a human city on the world of Red's birth. He'd not seen it since before the merge and did not know if it even existed on Merged World. It was a sunny day, and the market was quite busy, with people buying and selling their wares. Children ran through the streets playing, and Red was inundated with the sounds and smells of his homeland. A little bit of shock hitting Red there, right? Not only am I not where I was a minute ago, but I'm here of all places, right? You can imagine a bit of shock to the system, trying to figure out what's going on. It happened very, very quickly. Hello, Buffy. My kitty. Um, so, 
trying to figure out what's happening there. Next to Red was a small booth where an older woman sold fruit. Red stepped over and greeted her. The woman did not look up or acknowledge him in any way. He tried again, louder this time, in case she was hard of hearing. Still, there was no response. Guys, give me one real quick second, if you will. I got a kitty who wants some treats. Literally, they we put those things in the same spot every night, and she cannot find them unless I bring them over and shake the bowl in front of her face. Sorry. <laughs> uh, where was I? So yes. Um, stepped over, greeted her. Woman didn't look at him. He tries again a bit louder. In case she's, she's an older lady, maybe her hearing's not not that good. And uh, still, absolutely no response or acknowledgement that he's there. Confused, he was about to walk away when a young man stepped up and asked to buy an apple. The woman smiled and took his coins as he chose a large red apple from the pile. Red spoke again, but neither of them paid him any attention. Red reached out to touch the man's shoulder, but snatched his hand back quickly after it passed through the man's body. Red thought quickly and then smiled. So it was an illusion then. Perhaps he was even somehow inside his own memories. But how was this a test? Especially test of a heart, putting him back in his homeland. Now he's getting a grip on what's going on. Okay. Either this isn't real, and it's an illusion, or somehow I'm back in time, and I'm an you know, not an illusion, or whatever. This, you know, he doesn't know what the power of that thing is. So he's back in whatever. Is he really there, or what? Not sure. Hello, Jamie. <laughs> so... Red is now back in his own homeland. Hasn't seen it in years. But he can't talk to anybody. He can't physically touch them. He's walking on the ground, obviously. Not floating around. Um, but he literally can't touch anyone or anything of that nature. He began walking through the crowd. Literally, in some places. As he began to search for why he was there. It didn't take very long at all. He saw her from across the plaza, coming down the stairs leading to the market. The young woman was in her late teens, attractive, but not overly so, and she carried in her hands a small basket. So, setting the stage, the plaza itself, this market, is a large spot, say in the center of a much larger city. Right? You can see taller buildings in the distance. So, very large area. And... Outside of the plaza, one side is higher. The buildings are up kind of on a bit of a hill. So the street, there's some stairs that come down to this area from that part of town. So this young woman is coming down a set of stairs to get into the marketplace. She has a small basket. It's not overly large, so maybe she's there to sell some things, or maybe she's there to buy some things and has a way to carry it. Either way, she's coming into the plaza, and he recognizes her. Damn it, screamed Red in his mind. Not today. Why did it have to be this day? Red, at this moment, seems to know exactly what date or day this was. So, seeing that young woman coming down the stairs clarifies for him, this is not current time. I haven't been transported to this city somewhere else. That girl's coming down the stairs, and I remember the day that that happened. 
And this is not, for some reason, a good day. Red began running to, through the market, towards her. As she cleared the stairs, Red had almost reached her. But almost as he had, he quickly turned to the right and began running away from her, instead towards an alley further away and on the edge of the marketplace, running directly towards it. He had to get there first. Reaching the alley, he stepped only inside a couple steps before stopping, and as he expected, they stood near the wall before him. The two boys standing there were no more than 10 or 11 years old. They were dressed poorly, their sandals worn and barely held together. Red stared at himself, still a child, and long before he went by the name Red. He remembered how hungry he'd been that day. He and his friend Kiev hadn't had a real meal in days. Red reached out and tried to grab his younger self, but like everyone else, his hands passed through the boy. The children heard none of his words. I don't know, the young Red said. It's too dangerous. There's guards all over the market, and you know the Baron said anyone, or the king said anyone caught stealing would lose their hands. Only if they get caught, Kiev replied. Besides, is that any worse than starving to death? The young Red nodded sadly. He looked up to Kiev. The two boys had been taking care of each other a long time, living on the streets on whatever scraps they could find. The two had fled the orphanage a year earlier and, and had been on their own ever since. There, that girl with the basket, said Kiev. I saw her just pull coins out of a good-sized purse. Looks like she's alone, too. Young Red nodded while the older Red sighed in defeat. There was nothing he could do to stop what was coming. How could this be a test? What was he expected to do? As the two boys left the dark alley, Red's vision once again began to grow fuzzy. So he's standing there looking down at himself as a kid, right? And I think I said he's in his, like, 40s, early 50s at this point. He's, he's as a human, right? He's beyond middle age. Uh, and in a world such as this, not everyone lives to a ripe old age, right? We look back to our own medieval history and life expectancy uh, when there isn't medicines. Granted, I, I like to think that life expectancy in D&D &D isn't quite as bad as that. I hear that example being used a lot, and I use it myself. Uh, but people in our medieval didn't have clerics walking around with magical healing powers. You know what I mean? So, uh, yes, I would say for the common folk, it is quite possible that a lot of people died to sicknesses and illnesses and plagues and things of that nature. But I think that there would be at least a bit longer of a life expectancy, uh, especially if nothing else for those who could afford it, right? The, the middle, middle range to wealthy folks who can afford to pay or get assistance from the magical elixirs and cures and such that might exist in a world that has magic and intervening gods and things of that nature. Gorb says this is very sad. <laughs> yes, yes it is. <laughs> so he sees his best friend, Kiev, and a younger version of himself, knowing how hungry they are, because they're living off trash and scraps, and they haven't had a real meal in a couple of days, though they always seem to find just enough to get them by. 
could that be fate? Hmm, things to think about. Um, but at this moment, you know, they decide they, they're tired of being hungry all the time. They're going to try to go to the market and take somebody's money or purse or something of that nature to try to get some real food. They've reached that point where they, they feel that that's their only option. It's better than starving to death. But the marketplace is full of guards, and it seems the king has a very uh, harsh punishment for anyone caught stealing. So again, as I mentioned, his vision goes fuzzy. And again, kind of like he did before, but then when it clears, he's now standing inside of a large chamber, a room, the walls brick, well decorated. And he knows that he's standing inside the castle. This is the main primary throne room of the king of Trenovan. Okay, you can see the thrones up there. The king is sitting on his. Uh, the king is a man probably about the age Red is in the current times, probably late 40s, early 50s. Uh, good shape, you know, he's, he's known to be a, a, a war, fierce warrior and such. And not an overly evil man, by any ways, though uh, relatively, you know, uh, law. You know, there's a law, there's a law for a reason. The Lord King currently is sitting on his throne speaking to uh, several other people about a land claim dispute. Not like a trial or anything of that nature. Seems it's just him talking with several advisors. This dispute is not involving the people there specifically, and they're kind of talking about what needs to be done to resolve it and so on and so forth. So they seem relatively calm, although Red, looking at the King, can see the King seems like his thoughts are somewhere else. Like he's a little irritated and agitated, and he's being sometimes a little short with his advisors who are talking to him, who just kind of look at each other and continue. They don't bring that up or anything, because why would you, right? Don't piss off the king. That is probably a great rule to follow for all of you. Don't piss off a king. Just saying, in general, in life or D&D, try not to piss off royalty. I'm just saying. Bad things usually follow. He's in this room and he sees this, and it's, it too is all too familiar to him. And he's barely in the room but a moment or so before the doors on the other end of the room burst open and several guards come in, dragging between them two young men, both Red and Kiev. They're being dragged into the chamber by guards. I say dragged because, you know, the classic, they got them by their arms, their feet are kind of flopped, they're dragging them in. They're kids and they're very skinny, obviously. They haven't been eating well, so they're not heavy. Uh, so they're just being briskly brought into the room. This, of course, causes a bit of a commotion. And then most of the advisors and such step away, and the king rises from his throne and takes a couple steps down. Because it's the classic throne room, right? It's up on a little bit of an area, then there's some stairs coming down that go wider. He comes down to the bottom of the stairs to kind of meet. A man, clearly a captain or general, someone of a higher rank, steps up and, you know, salutes the king. And the king says, is this them? And the captain nods and says, yes. These are the two boys that were caught trying, uh, caught thieving at the market. It seems that they had tried to rob the king's niece and had been caught in the act. Now, as I mentioned, the king was known as a hard man, but fair. He was never known to be an evil king, and, and people were not untowardly punished. People weren't forced to be poor. Taxes were average, if you will, you know, um, Overall, there was no big urge to overthrow the king. He was a pretty good king. Wasn't the best one they had, far from the worst one they've ever had. Uh, at this point, he was more than accepted as a, overall a good leader. Um, but 
as of late, there had been some rumors that the king had seemed angrier. He'd been shorter, and as such, some things may have been uh, taken a little bit worse than they would have been uh, in the past. The king, of course, speaks down to them harshly. Asks them, do you know the punishment for theft in my kingdom? Where are your parents? The captain leans in and says, appears that they're orphans, sir. Living on the streets. The king, waving his hand like, that doesn't matter. Says, stealing from, stealing from my people is a crime we will not accept. But trying to steal from my family, my own blood kin, that takes it too far. He says, on the morrow, you two will be beheaded in the public square. You could tell from some of the gas, even the captain looking at him like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. There are other criminals of high treason that are going to be put tomorrow. They don't do this every day, but you will join them and so on and so forth. Um, at this point, we will make an example out of you so that others will know not only my people not to be stolen from, but that you will not mess with the king's family. Kiev speaks out. He tries to use this moment to save his friend. Says, please, sir, we didn't mean any harm. And, and Red was just doing what I told him to. I, I made him do it. Don't blame him. This was me. The king steps forward and just slaps Kiev across the face hard. The boy's eyes roll back and he almost knocks him straight unconscious, hits him so hard. The king just looks down in anger and says, then he will die knowing that you killed him and has them taken away. The captain nods. They're taken away. Red, older Red, again, standing there, can't say anyone, can't interact. All he can do is watch this past memory of himself going through. Now, Red's standing there watching this. So clearly he can't die, right? I mean... That would only uh, imply the fact that he's here watching this happen. If it's his memory, he has to live through it to have that memory. What might happen then? Once again, his vision blurs and fades. And now he's transported outside once again to a different location in the city, but still one he knows all too well. One... He may know the best. And in this square, there's, of course, the block, right? This is where people are brought, where, where punishments are carried out. There are big blocks on a raised stage, if you will. There's allowed room for a crowd. And as you can imagine, there's always a huge crowd there. Because being an overall fair king, most people would agree that the people who are getting this punishment usually ones that deserve it, right? Right? If, if, you know, he's not just killing everybody for the fun of it. He's not that kind of king. So maybe with the exception of these two boys, the majority of a, people that are brought here are adults. They're murderers and rapists and all that kind of... People that should be killed, that the people are totally fine with this. And, I mean, if we look at, again, that type of mindset in a, in a generation or an era of that thing, much like in our own past, uh, it was a show. 
It was entertainment. So there are children there as well, you know, laughing and cheering as many of the adults are. Though uh, I think it's, it's a fair consensus that the vast majority of people attending this type of thing would see the people that are being brought up here, primarily male, just the way it works, uh, as criminals deserving of the punishment they're going to receive. Now across from that, the edge of the clearing, of course, is a raised stage. Uh, now, this is these are permanent. These aren't quickly put up here. This is obviously used for this, though not used often. It's the kind of situation where they're like, okay, at the end of this month, all criminals who have been uh, you know, decreed to be executed will be brought in from everybody from the last six months. It's not something that happens every day. It doesn't even happen monthly. But it's like, okay, this is when we take care of this. There are special occasions when something somebody does something so heinous that it's done immediately. And some that are so bad that they don't wait and they just do it in private and be like, listen, you can't live. You, you're going to die right now. You can't be trusted. It's not safe to even keep you a prisoner, right? So the king is up on that area. Several guards and uh, advisors and such standing around him. There's the thrones there for him and the queen. And he's there by himself, of course. But the king's up there watching this. And the people in the audience are cheering and jeering. Red arrives... Just in time, well, his vision clears just in time for him to see an axe fall and a man's head separated from his shoulders. Boom, falls down, lands in the basket, but rolls out because there's already a couple of in there. The audience again cheers and applauds. Clearly, the man that was just put to death uh, was particularly bad based on the level of applause that they're seeing. Red, watching, looking outwards, sees this and sees this here as well. You can see that again, that there's all these men and women and some children watching, as well as a small line of men, including two boys, to the side of the stage being brought up the stairs one at a time in a line, right? Lots of guards around them. No one's escaping. You can imagine people try to make a break forward, that kind of thing. Lots of guards to keep them from escaping. Probably hands and feet shackled, that kind of stuff. Uh, and they're being led up and then led up the stairs. Red can only feel a pang of sadness seeing this sight, seeing his homeland. More importantly, seeing himself and his friend being led up those stairs. And at the same time, Red also remembers what's about to happen next. And inside, he can't help but feel a little bit of smile thinking back on, the, on this moment. Young Red, of course, shuffles forward. They're near the back of the line, the boys. They're, again, the last editions and some of the uh, least heinous criminals in this situation. So they're near the back. They're slowly making their way up towards the block. Someone gets beheaded, the line shuffles forward. Gets beheaded, the line shuffles forward. In this moment, there's nothing they can do to escape. The boy's hands are shackled. They're shackled, uh, not to each other, but his hands are shackled and Kiev's hands are shackled. And he's in front of Kiev. He is going to die first. The king said, then you're, you, you, will, you will die knowing that your friend died because of you. Red is going to be killed first. Kiev has to watch that before dying. The king was very angry. Not much else to do. I'd hear the screaming crowd trying not to look at the people who are being beheaded because you know, I don't want to see that. Red doesn't. He knows that's his future. He can't help but look around him and see the people jeering, see the audience, see what's going on, sees the king across the way, 
sees the buildings and such around, the shops and even some booths from market. Because in, in a city like this, there'll be little booths everywhere, not just in the marketplace, but little things popped up all over the place. Red's near the top of the stairs. There's only one or two gentlemen before him at this point, And he's getting very, very close to his turn up on the stage. And he now gets a real full view of looking out. And he sees the king up there, who is barely paying attention. He's talking to an advisor about something or other. But he's up there, and then there's guards and people cheering and all that in front of him. And as he looks around the crowd... If the characters were being beheaded, the player cares to be forced to make either a fear, motion check, or circumstances. Well, that would depend on what version you play, of course. Um, I think 5th edition has those, yes. 2nd edition doesn't have anything of that nature. What they have is something called System Shock, uh, which is a constitution roll. So you'd make a constitution check, and uh, you'd see whether or not you have survived. Whether or not you you basically freak out. System shock can be a couple of different things. Because system shock can be how you react to a situation. And the second thing you can be used is how your body reacts to something. So uh, there's a thing that if you take 50% of your maximum hit points damage in one round. You have to make a system shock. Or literally you go into shock and pass out. So you can be phenomenal, super powerful warrior dude with 100 hit points. Dragon hits you for 50 hit points. You take so much damage in one shot that um, your body literally, you go into shock from that much pain and damage and, and such that's been done to you. We, you hear about that all the time in our world. There's car accidents. Somebody goes into shock, right? Someone in the family dies, murders. Spouse goes into shock. This It's common where you just can't react to this. It's too much all at once. So both mentally and physically exists that way. Uh, there was shortened down to fear check, horror check, and madness. Uh, Ravenloft had some of those things potentially as well. I read all the Ravenloft novels, and I've played a little in Ravenloft, though I've never DM'd Ravenloft. Um... I don't remember ever having to make those rolls, but that's not to say that they didn't exist. I, I didn't play a lot in Ravenloft. I know, I know more on the lore of Ravenloft than I do on the actual mechanics of it as a play setting. For those of you who are wondering, Ravenloft is one of the many Dungeons and Dragons worlds like Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, Spelljammer, Dark Sun. Uh, and it's more of a horror, macabre-type setting with vampires, werewolves, undead. It's, it's based more on that type of thing. So in that type of a world, uh, special checks to survive or not be horrified and stuff would totally make sense because you're going to run into those type of monstrous entities way more often than you would in the common uh, uh, prime material plane, which is what we consider the regular worlds. So, Red's brought up there, he's looking over the audience, looking across at everything before him, waiting his turn. When all of a sudden, about that time, Something happens. And the crowd begins to get blurry. Now this is young Red, not old Red. This is young Red. As you look at the crowd, it's like the faces just kind of lose their details. It's like they cut... It's, imagine, if you will, that you're looking at someone on, on webcam and they go out of focus, right? It gets a little fuzzy. It starts to do that. But not everything. The people and the buildings in the background, they start to get a little fuzzy. They start to fade out of view. But at the same time, something 
becomes very clear and easy to see. Something that's more important, right? Something that's almost glowing. It's so clear through the, you know, through this, right? You got a webcam, everything's blurry. There's one thing in the corner that's perfectly clear. Your eyes are going to go to that. Naturally. And what he sees is a booth and it's on the edge of the area they're at now. There's a man there, appears to be a herbalist. He's selling plants. Plants and powders and things. And he sees this. And as he looks, he sees... The plant's hanging from the top of his stall with bright red leaves. And he remembers that. He remembers those leaves for some reason. That's important. And as he's looking across the room, or across the crowd, the next thing that comes into focus is the king. And he looks at the king, who's not really paying attention. The king is clear, but more importantly, the king in his chair is clear. And almost as if... Uh, in a special effect, if you will. There's almost like a a swirling light red glower line coming from those plants and connecting to the king. At least that's what appears at first. Why? It's almost like these these petals, everything else around it is blurred. It's out of focus. But those plants are somehow connected. And as he focuses, he realizes they're not pointed at the king. They're going to the throne next to the king. The empty chair that happens to be sitting there. And his mind races. He's thinking back. The king has been upset lately. The king has been known to be harsher, more uh, strict, uh, loses temper faster, things of that nature. He thinks back to the room when he was being uh, judged, if you will. The angry king stealing from his family, how important it was that his family not be treated poorly. And remembers that the king was there alone, the queen was not there as well. And these things start to connect in his mind. He starts seeing similarities and it starts to draw a picture for him. And as this happens, as it's, as it's kind of coming into focus and the, his vision starts to clear, he feels rough hands on both of his arms lifting him up and dragging him towards the center of the stage. He's brought before the block. Classic executioner. Big old axe. Black hood standing to the side. Big old axe. Because executioners should have a big old axe. Some use a sword, and that's okay. I've always been uh, preferred the axe as an executioner's tool. Although once I did have someone use a war hammer, and he would squish the heads. That's very gross. I only did that once. Um, so you remember the queen was not present, and at this point he's being brought up there. And as he's put, he's forced to go down on his knees, and they're about to basically lean him forward onto the block. And he just blurts out, screams out very quickly, My lord, I know how to cure the queen. And his voice just cuts through the audience, which was not as loud as it had been at this point. You understand that. These people are like, why is this little kid being dragged up here? These criminals, we've been killing murderers and rapists and all that kind of... Yes, 100%. Why are these two young boys being dragged up here? Now, before they're beheaded, their crimes are normally read out by someone who's standing on stage, who's been reading them out kind of thing. So as they're being dragged up there, that hasn't happened yet. They're, the audience is more of a murmur of like, what's going on here? Why are the kids being dragged up here? This is not normal. 
You Gallaghered his head. Oh, yeah, I did. Uh, not just one. Many. But I did it that one adventure. It was very gross. The, he, was the, he was the villain in that adventure. And they had... Uh, yeah, that was a non-Merge Worlds canon one. That was just a side adventure I did for a small, for a small group once. Um, but they had to save their friend from uh, being executed. So, I hadn't thought about that adventure in a long time. Um, so, I know how to cure the queen. So, his voice cuts through the air. Very clear. And the king looks up. Like, it catches his attention. He hears this. It's so loud and so easy. It just cuts through the air more than it should. Almost like it's magnified. Or, no, not magnified. That would make it smaller. No, magnified's bigger. It's louder than it should be. We'll go with that. I can't think of the word right now. Now, guards, of course, grab the boy and wrestle him back down because he tried to stand up to say he's caught him unaware. Kids hadn't fought or tried to get away. The men had kind of become complacent. These are just little kids. We're not worried about it. But he's amplified. Thank you, Miss Ashley. Amplified is the word, not magnified. Amplified. Thank you very much. And they, they grab him and start forcing him back down. But the king stands and holds his hand up and tells them to stop. Of course, the people on the stage are okay. The king doesn't normally get involved in this. And the people now have turned and looked at the king. This is very confusing to everybody. First, he's dragging some kids up there. They're about to behead a kid. Then the kid yells out, I can fix, heal the queen. Nobody... What's wrong with the queen? And then the king tells them to stop. It's very confusing for everybody in the audience. They obviously don't know what's going on. The king stands there for a moment, just kind of looking at young Red. And then says, bring the boys to me. Bring them here now. The captain, standing next to him, nods and runs down and himself to rush over. And by the time he gets through the crowd to the stage, the boys have already been dragged down. They're still shackled. The guards have got them and their, their feet are just being dragged behind him again because the king wants them, wants them now. They're hurrying. So they're rushing around, dragging the little feeties behind him. They get to the stairs, carry them up the stairs and put them in front of the king. Now, immediately, the guards, as they normally do, force them down onto their knee. They're standing before the king. Man or child or adult, you stand before the king, you're going to kneel. And he puts him down, puts the kids down on their knee. And the king goes and literally gets down on a knee as well in front of Red, gets right in front of his face. And you can tell he's angry, but he also has a look of worry on his face. Not just anger, but concern. He says, How do you know the king how do you know the queen is ill? Who told you? And Red said, I, I no, nobody told me, Sire, I, I just know. The king gets angry at this. Demands to know how he knows. How do you know this? What type of game are you playing? And Kiev speaks up. Don't be angry at him, sire. He just sometimes knows things. It's always been that way. He can't control it. Didn't mean to make you mad. Didn't mean to cause any trouble. And King hears this and the sincerity. These are little kids, right? Sincerity. He, he's not looking at these as trained liars. He's like, why is the, this kid saying that? And the king's anger fades a little bit. He seems now a bit more curious. Is this true, boy? Sometimes you just know things? Red nods. Tell the boy's scared. Visions? 
someone speak to you? He says, I, I, I sometimes see things and they, sometimes things just make sense. King stands back up and he puts his hand on his beard. He has a beard. He strokes his beard. His isn't red and green like mine, but he's, he's, he nods his beard. He turns to one of his advisors who steps over and he speaks to him for a moment. The advisor nods, kind of like a, like he could. And he looks back at Red and says, the king, whoever his name is, should be more thoughtful with kids. <laughs> there you go. And he looks, looks down at little Red and says, tell me the cure. How do I make it? Red, he's allowed to stand up at this point. Red looks nervous, and he opens his mouth as if to begin to speak. And in that moment, his body kind of straightens. Like it just takes more. And in his own ears, Red hears himself speaking. But the voice that's coming out is stronger. It's his voice, but it's stronger. It's confident. It's more powerful, if you will. And even though he knows he's speaking, he doesn't know what it is he's saying. But he hears himself, and he knows there's something about leaves and having to be mixed. They're being crushed to a powder and added, and he literally reads these things off. The king seems very interested. The advisor literally appears to be like making a list, like, okay, I'm going to add one of these, okay. Taking that information. And as Red finishes telling, say he, he feels himself regaining control with the point where his body literally, huh, like he feels the fatigue kick in. And he does. He feels tired. He's already feeling tired, right? They didn't feed him much the last day. He was already starving. He's already sick, right? He's a kid living on the streets. He's weak as he is, but now he just feels like he's about ready to fall over. The king gets a little bit of a smile. Not making them feel better. Like the smile he has is more of a, oh really, kind of a thing. Chainlink is exhausting, Miss Ashley says. He turns to his advisor, holds his hand up, and the advisor hands him the list, and he looks back over it, making sure that everything the boy had said is on there, and he nods. He hands this to the captain. Go to that booth and buy every one of those plants and get the rest of those things and have them brought to the castle immediately. Captain nods, salutes, immediately rushes down the stairs to go do exactly what he was just told. Get these things and do it fast. Captain loyal and a good guy. The king turns back to Red and Kiev. We're sitting there. And, he, and then he looks to his guards and says, take them to the castle. Have them put in cells away from each other. Before they go, the king looks to Red and looks down and leans in once again and looks to Red. Because Red's short, right? Kind of leans in. He goes, if you're lying, if this is some type of game, I promise you, your short life will be filled with more pain than you can imagine. Red can't help but nod as the boys are then dragged out down the thing, not to the chopper's block, but back towards the castle. Elder Red is now standing inside a stone cell. He sees his younger self on the floor, chained, where he's lied for three days. He'd been given just enough food and water to survive. The boy was still weak. And more than anything else, he was alone. So it's a stone cell, right? It's a small, round cell with a metal door, 
couple little bars in it. So not like bars you can see other jail cells, nothing like that. He's in a stone cell room. There's no bed. He's laying on the ground. There's probably some hay, a shit bucket in the corner. Occasionally food is brought in. Not very tasty food, you can imagine. But the door opens. Red looks up weakly and then is surprised to see the king standing there himself. Young Red. Big Red's just standing there watching all this. Red, weakly, pulls himself up onto his knees, but stays kneeling. The door closes behind the king, who stands there looking down at Red. The queen is doing well. The cure you gave seems to be working. More such so than working where nothing else we tried did. Hang on a second, got a question here. If you somehow put away a draven vampire away in a stone dungeon, said vamp would be able to stone skin his way out of a dungeon. Well, that would depend on... Draven's a little different. Remember, he's a special type of vampire. He's a born vampire. Their skills and abilities aren't exactly the same. He can't turn into bats and all that stuff. Uh, Draven vampire has abilities because he's also half demon, remember? So, there's that. Um, But a regular vampire, yes. Um, he says, I've uh, searched out, had people searching for information on you, and there's very little. You were brought to the orphanage, looks like, four years ago. There's nothing about who your parents were, nothing that connects you to anyone, really. Morley just abandoned there. Asked him a couple questions. Do you remember your parents? And he's like, no, I don't remember anything before the orphanage. And he's like, okay. Asking some things. And Red's being completely honest. He doesn't, it's the king. Why would he not? He's always been raised to this is the king. You don't lie to the king. Especially right now when he was already on a chopping block. He doesn't want to do anything to make the king mad. King kind of is walking around Red and gets back to where the door is. And he looks down and he goes, the gift of yours is quite impressive. Very, very much so. If you were to learn to use it, control it even, I think that you could be of great use to me. I could see that uh, if you served me and use your gift for the benefit of our kingdom, I would see to it that you are taken care of. Food, clothing, room of your own, place of your own, coin to spend. You would serve me, you would work for me, but you would tell no one about your abilities. That would be just between yourself, myself, and a few select folks uh, that I would select, obviously. If you do this, I will let you live. Serve me, and you can make up for the crimes of your past. He kind of, kind of guilting the kid a little bit, right? Making it seem like what you did was horrible. But I'll let it go. You serve me. Red's there a moment, obviously thinking about it. It sounds like a great deal. Why would he not? Work for the king? Get money and clothes and food? But of course he has to ask, what what about Kiev? My friend. The king says, I have no use for your king. But if you serve me, I will let him live as well. I'll have him return to the orphanage. He can live out until he's old enough to go out on his own. I will see to it that he has some... He's cared for and receives something to get himself a life of his own. You can't speak with him again. Can't have anyone else knowing about what you can do. 
Red is sad to hear that he would not be able to see Kiev again, but he'd be saving Kiev's life. The orphanage really wasn't that bad. Maybe they even thought about going back a couple times themselves. At least they got some food regularly there. Without any really better option, Little Red agrees. Your Highness, I, I would be honored to serve you. The king smiles, and it kind of makes Red feel, oh, good, I've made the king feel good. He feels a little better about it. And the king puts his hand on his, uh, down on Little Red's shoulder and, and smiles and says, My boy, I say, your, your life is about to drastically improve. And you'll be doing good for the kingdom and for its people. Type of thing Red would want to hear, right? Elder Red stands there, staring at him, his younger self and the man he used to serve. And as his vision begins to fade for the last time, he can't help but think what's next for the boy. He knows it'll be years before he learned that Kiev was already dead before they had that conversation. The king far too fearful that knowledge of Red's powers would spread to his enemies. And that Red would spend years serving the king, very often doing things that he's not proud of, dark things that helped advance the king's ambitions, before finally reaching a point where he was able to break free of him. It was then after that that he knew Red would dedicate his life instead to make amends for the things of his own past by trying to help others and using his powers to the benefit instead of the detriment of the people. He spent the rest of his life trying to make up for the things he did in the name of his king. Red's eyes opened, and he was once again standing in the chamber below the giant tree. The figure pulls his hand away from Red's head. You have been brought here by fate, says the figure, a powerful force indeed. I judge your heart worthy. You may take the sigil and move on to the next test. The figure turned and returned to the chair that it had sat in and sat back down. It closed its eyes and again appeared as it did when they very first entered into the chamber. Red stepped up on the dais and picked up the silver disc. Returning to his allies, he led them out of the chamber silently. Once outside, back in the hall, making their way back to the first chamber, he told them what had happened without going into too many personal details. Speaking more of a, I was back in my memory, I had to relive through some of the things of my past. Uh, he wants them to have that information because the next test may be the same thing for someone else. And they might be better suited to pass or survive said test of having this knowledge. But Red does do his best to leave out a lot of the specific personal details of his own past. Red didn't know which test was next, or who would be chosen to take it. He could only hope that they too would be judged worthy. The figure was incredibly powerful, and even together, he didn't know if his allies would be strong enough to defeat it. And he did not know what they would face next. Returning to the central chamber, Red takes the silver disc and places it into the center door. And that is where we're going to stop for today.
right about the hour 20 mark, which is a little bit more where I've been aiming for lately, hour 15 to hour and a half, make the podcast a little bit more uh, consumable. Uh, again, I know I've mentioned this a lot lately, but I've got a lot of feedback that it's hard to keep up with it when it's three hours long every episode. So trying to make it slightly a little bit easier for people to be, get caught up before the next episode. So they now have the second sigil, this disc, that they will use to open the door and uh, assumedly take on the next test. What lie behind that door, what that test is, and who will face it, we will find out next episode of Merge Worlds, which is two weeks from now, uh, 2022, so it's two days after Christmas, I believe. The Tuesday after Christmas in December. Um, what do we got here? Anyone says, you may tell that we'll be doing good for the kingdom, but the king may have something sinister in mind. Oh, you are right on the money there. Now she says, poor Red. Yes, Red spent a, many years doing things that he was led to believe were right, although they were not, before finally being able to break free to become his own man. And then he dedicated the rest of his life to helping others, using his power, his link to fate, to save or protect or help find uh, those things needed to be able to uh, help people who aren't able to do it themselves. It's part a little bit behind of who Red is and why Red does what he does. He doesn't do it for payment. Remember he said that at the beginning. He doesn't take payment. He doesn't offer payment. It's more of a trade thing. You... I will help you. In the future, I'll need you to help me. Maybe help someone else, right? Something you can help me do in the future might enable me to save somebody else's life or soul or whatever the case may be. Um, now, how Draven and Red came connected together. Well, that's a story for another time. I've been uh, talking a little bit lately um, with some folks and uh, thought about potentially, on occasion... Uh, doing little side stories from of Merged Worlds. Maybe they would be pre-recorded. They wouldn't be as live as this. But it would be the same kind of format, me telling the story. Uh, kind of like a Merged Worlds supplemental, where I tell just little snippets of how some characters met each other, or little side adventures people were on, or more history about certain places. You know, uh, maybe why was this evil king here? Why was the liches ruling the city? How did the gully dwarves get in trouble? How did Fig build the kingdom. You know, I mean, there's different, a lot of side stuff, lore and information that I have in my mind that I had to put together to be able to build the story. But a lot of that information is purely in my mind. It's more lore building and, and world building for me. Um, so uh, maybe sometime if people are interested, as I move into 2023, um, I occasionally might release Emerged World supplemental episodes or mini stories that would just be one or two episodes uh, of that nature. So if that's something you're interested in hearing, something you think you'd like, be sure to put that down in the comments, um, both here or on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to Merge Worlds, YouTube, whatever. Love to hear your feedback. Or you can join our Discord channel. Find links to my Discord and all of my stuff on my website, onlydraven.com. Swing on by, join up the Discord. We chat about Merge Worlds. We've got a thread dedicated specifically to that in Dungeons & Dragons. Love to hear your thoughts on the story and characters uh, and feedback, things you'd like to see more of. Ashley says she's down for that. Thought you might be. <laughs> but that is going to do us for today. Again, thank you all very much once again for giving me the opportunity to share this story with you guys. Uh, I spend so much of my free time literally writing in my head. And I have so much stuff in the future written. Like I have so much down the road stuff written that I uh, have to 
I'm, I'm kind of writing the story in between these segments, how to get them to where I need them to be for these important uh, things. So uh, getting to share that with you guys is, is a huge benefit. Anyone want to say, want to talk about Ravenloft mechanics one day? Uh, bring up, yeah, sure. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. Said so I've, I've dabbled in Ravenloft. Again, a lot of the lore stuff behind it. I've read, let me rephrase. I, I had read all the novels at the time that I stopped reading them. I believe some have come out probably in the last five or six years I've not read. Uh, but up until that point, I'd read them all, the Soth. Uh, probably my favorite one, even though I'm forgetting the name of it, is the Carnival of Fear. That's what it was. Carnival of Fear is not only one of, not only my favorite Ravenloft novel, uh, probably one of my favorite Dungeons & Dragons novels ever. Uh, as a solo novel, like I, uh, Dragonlance is my jam. You guys know that the, the the original Chronicles trilogy and the Twins trilogy; those are iconic to me. But for just a standalone book, uh, Carnival of Fear is probably number one, followed by Lord Toad or Toed, however you want to pronounce it, which is a Dragonlance novel. Those two are some of the best standalone fantasy novels I've ever heard, and both of them had an effect on how merge worlds exist, in one way or another. Interesting. But thank you all for coming by and hanging out. Be sure to give this video a like if you are watching it on YouTube, whether you're watching it today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road. It really does help the channel. And again, if you have a Spotify or iTunes account, if you wouldn't mind giving the podcast a follow, throw it the five stars, review if you've got a couple minutes. Um, definitely trying to grow the presence on the podcast circuit, and uh, all of your help would be greatly appreciated. But you folks have yourself a wonderful evening. If I don't see you before then, I hope you have yourself a wonderful holiday season, regardless of what you celebrate. And more importantly, um, hopefully we will see you here in two weeks for a little bit more Merch Worlds, our Dungeons & Dragons story podcast. You folks have yourself a wonderful day.